If you have your Bibles, if you'd be opening them to the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to be looking basically at two chapters this morning, which is more than usual, but when we're in narrative text, you kind of have to take it as a unit as it presents itself, and this is one unit, so we're going to not break up the narrator's flow of thought, which will mean we'll be spending a little bit more time reading, Um, but that's okay. That's part of what we're called to do as God's people. This is on page 205 in the Pewback Bible, if you'd like to use that. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word of your own that you can use and read, please take that one home as our congregation's gift to you. Last week in chapter 4, Israel was warring with the Philistines, and they lost the first round, but they decided that they would win the second round if they had the ark of God with them on the battlefield. But they were wrong. 30,000 soldiers were killed along with Eli's two sons, and most climatically, the ark of God was captured. And the narrator focused on the Israelite response to the ark's capture, which included things like shouts of mourning, fainting, and early labor leading to death. In other words, this was a, a clear and dramatic signal to the Israelites of the dire straits that they were in. But what they failed to understand was that things had been this way for a long time. Their relationship with the Lord was broken. And so in order for their relationship to mend, they needed to relearn some of the fundamentals of who their God was and we now know is. They needed to remember that God is supreme, He is sovereign, and that He will be sanctified by His people. And we see the first of these truths in chapter 5, which shifts the focus to the Philistines' experience with the ark. So in chapter 5, we see that God is supreme. But let's ask the Lord's help before we read chapter 5 together. Father, you are supreme. You are over all. We ask that you would get the glory from our time together, that you would illumine our minds and our hearts to receive your word, and that we might cherish Christ more, having gathered together this morning. We ask it in his name. Amen. God is supreme, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face downward to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. 
But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was already a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So the Philistines transported the ark from the Israelite encampment at Ebenezer to the city of Ashdod, deep within their own territory. And they would have expected reprisals from Israel in attempts to regain the ark that was stolen from them. But at this location, the Philistines would have been well defended. And like in a game of capture the flag or stealing someone's mascot, the Philistines had no intention of ever giving back the ark to Israel. In their minds, it was a trophy of war that signified their people's and their God's superiority over Israel's people and God. So they brought the ark, the symbol of God's presence, into the presence of their God, Dagon. But their thoughts of superiority were about to be dashed, literally in one sense. When they got up for celebratory worship in Dagon's house the next day, their deaf, dumb Dagon was on his face before the ark of God. Now, that's meant to strike us as odd, as it would have them. Big, heavy metal statues kept inside, out of the elements, don't just tip over on their own. They would have been scratching their heads, wondering how it had happened. But with no explanation presenting itself, they simply stood their helpless God back up, and put him back where he went. Only the same thing happened again the next morning. And this time, their prostrate idol had been dismembered. His head and his hands had been cut off and orderly placed at the entry to the temple. And just, I think, ironically, would have confronted all prospective worshipers that their God was in pieces. That kind of puts a damper on the victory chant. Kind of breaks the number one foam fingers right off. You see, what the Philistines failed to understand was that even though they had captured the ark of God, they had not captured God. God cannot be captured. No one holds God hostage. No God, no people, no rulers, no land will stand before the Lord. He is supreme over all. And the Philistines had defeated Israel, but they would never defeat Israel's God. And in fact, the only reason they had been able to defeat Israel and capture the ark in the first place was because it was a part of God's plan to judge His people and replace their leaders. By utterly shaming Dagon this way, God was proclaiming the truth about His superiority over Dagon loud and clear. Dagon had absolutely zero power or authority over God. The only variable to arrive on the scene those first two nights when Dagon falls on his face was the ark of God. And the message was that any God who pretended to rival the God would end up decapitated and incapacitated. Now, I have loved these verses ever since I was a teenager. I can remember snickering when I was reading them in middle school. I almost can't help but laugh when I read them. 
They show how silly it is to worship anyone or anything but the one true God. However, while that's absolutely true, we should understand, just as a, a background for you, that images, icons, and statues weren't typically worshipped for their physical substance, but for who they were made to represent. And so this statue of Dagon wasn't the subject of their worship, but the physical representation of the God they worshipped. Now please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that this is an intellectually sensible thing to do. It's ridiculous to worship an idol, even in the name of worshiping the God the idol represents, because there is no other God other than the God of the Bible. And that means that when an idol is worshipped in the name of worshiping the God the idol worships, because God is, that God really doesn't exist, the worshiper is really just worshiping the metal or the stone or the wood that the image is made out of. Did you follow that? It's ridiculous. But you need to understand Even today, there are millions upon millions of people who still seek out relics, who make pilgrimages to what they think of as holy places. Food and drink are still offered to little figurines, and giant statues are still bowed down to that need the bird poop washed off of them to prepare them for a fresh coat of gold paint over their cracks and chips. But friends, each and every one of us is tempted to worship at least one idol every day, and it's just as ridiculous. You see, while it's laughably simple for us to see the delusion of idol worship in this form, it is much harder for us to recognize the way that we are drawn to worship the idol we see in the mirror every day. Trying to preserve and protect our physical health at all costs, pursuing wealth at the expense of others, Grumbling when we're slightly uncomfortable or inconvenienced. All of these and a thousand more signal that we have succumbed to the same ridiculousness of worshiping a created thing. And when we refuse to see the evidence of its foolishness, we're ripe to experience the collateral damage that comes from it. That's what we see in verses 6-12 through as the hand of the Lord comes down on the people themselves after having come down on their God. Wherever the ark went, from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron, the people's experience was the same. Terror and panic, tumors and death. Now the word translated as tumors has to do with swelling. It is generally thought to either be severe hemorrhoids or the bubonic plague, which involved the swelling of the lymph nodes and is often carried by rodents, which are referenced in chapter 6. But whatever it was, it wasn't good. And it resulted in the death of many and the pain and suffering of many more. And needless to say, wherever the ark was, its presence was not welcome, at least for long. In fact, as soon as As soon as the ark arrived to the third city, there was a mass outcry from the people because they had already heard what happened in Ashdod and Gath. 
The people of Ekron, Ekron actually told their leaders they shouldn't just send the ark away from their city, but that they should send it away from their land altogether, back to Israel. But apparently the leaders weren't ready to swallow their pride. They hadn't reached that same conclusion. And during that delay, the damage was very great, such that the howl of their collective pain resounded through the streets. It's a bleak picture. Friends, I know this is a simple truth, but it is one that is easily forgotten, and that is that God is supreme. He is quite able to take care of Himself. He doesn't need us to defend Him. He is not threatened ever. He was deep in enemy territory, miles away from the nearest Israelite. No one was coming to reclaim the ark, and yet there is zero drama, zero uncertainty about who's on top. God is supreme, period, full stop. He's not a superhero who isn't phased by much. He is God, and he's not phased by anything. Now, brothers and sisters, do you think that is less true today? Do you think God is panicking about the state of our world or our nation? I had a professor in seminary who would tell us about waking up in the middle of the night because of something he heard outside when he was a little boy. And he would go and he would wake up his father And his father, even though he had to wake up very early in the morning, without fail, every time he would take his son out into the darkness and stand there with him and say, son, if I'm not afraid, you don't need to be either. Well, church, if God's not worried about the future, if God's not scared about our economy, if God's not afraid of who's going to be in the White House or who's going to be on the justice bench, if God's not overwhelmed by the uncertainty of life after COVID, then at the end of the day, if God is with us, then we don't have any business being any of those things either. Take courage, saints. God is supreme. And next we see that God is sovereign. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, God is sovereign. Pick up with me in verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand has, has, does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land, and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart. 
but take their calves home away from them. <clears throat> and take <clears throat> sorry. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box and at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this us great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It has happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on the day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Eshkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Now, the Philistine leaders were reluctant to send the ark back, but within the seven months that they had the ark, they decided they had had all they could take. This is reminiscent of the events leading up to the Exodus as they call their priests and diviners for help, and they gave them very detailed instructions as to how they should go about sending the ark back to Israel. The first item of note is that it's a guilt offering they prescribe as we would expect with its name, for them to offer a guilt offering meant that they would be admitting their guilt before the God of Israel. They had obviously wronged him, and accordingly he had afflicted them. But this offering was a way of saying, please make it stop. And this wasn't the same as the guilt offering prescribed for God's people in the law, but the idea, the concept of remorse is still there. And specifically, the guilt offering is representative of the plagues they'd experienced and the number of their lords corresponding to the cities listed in verse 17. The gold hints at the level of cost to the people and accordingly the worthiness of God to receive this as a tribute from them. And it was their pagan understanding that they should give glory to this God of Israel who had proven himself supreme over them just like he had the Egyptians. And these Philistine diviners have enough awareness of the situation to realize they had better learn from Egypt's example before the angel of death came for the tenth plague. And we might fill out their message this way. Look, if you don't take our advice, God is just going to accomplish what He wants to get glory for Himself through you all the same. It would be better to get out of his way than to think that you can thwart his plan. How'd that work out for Egypt? 
You can still send the ark away and maybe escape with your lives, or you can hold on to the ark, and you'll still be sent away, and you might be sending your lives away. In other words, God is sovereign, so we'd better not pretend we are. They learned this the hard way over these seven grueling months. But before we give the Philistines too much credit, they still leave open the option that maybe this doesn't have anything to do with their problems. Maybe God isn't involved at all. Maybe this is just a series of unfortunate events that have been totally unrelated to the presence of God in their midst. And so they devise this test. Everything is set up based on animal instinct to work against returning the ark to Israel. And the first thing is that these are two cows with independent desires. Neither of them has been yoked before, which means they wouldn't be familiar with hauling anything, let alone together. Furthermore, this was a team that was unmanned and accordingly would have no human direction or prodding for over seven and a half miles But by far, the greatest obstacle was that the calves of these milk cows would have been crying for their moms back at home. And by stacking the deck against the cart returning to Israel, if it did go to Israel, then they would know for sure that God was responsible for what had happened to them. The people did just as they were advised, and going against their creaturely instincts, these cows make a beeline right for Israel as the Lord's watched from a distance. And the Israelites working in the field were looked up, and they saw the ark that they'd counted as lost coming right toward them. And naturally, they rejoiced at the ark's return, but as one commentator cautions us, their reaction doesn't disclose whether or not they're in the right heart before God or merely welcoming the return of a part of their national heritage. Now, which one of those is going to be true will be made clearer in the next section. The cows that had been hustling on their way stopped when they got where they were going, which is like icing on the cake for clarity about who is behind this whole scene. The great stone there was ready-made for a sacrifice as an altar, and the people commemorate it by using the stone for the altar, the wood from the cart for the fire, the cows for the burnt offering, the golden figures as the reminder of God's power, the ark of God signifying the presence of God, and the Levites there to lead them in the whole procession. Even after the abandonment of His people and the period of the judges under Eli's leadership, God had not ultimately abandoned His people. In God's sovereignty, He was working even their defeat and the ark's capture together for His glory and their good. Now the repetition of the guilt offering and the five Philistine cities in verses 17 and 18 serve as a reminder that all of Philistia, which was Israel's greatest foreign enemy at the time, all of it was in the palm of God's hand. He was in absolute control over them. And at the time this book was written, there was still a great big rock that stood fast as a great big reminder that God is sovereign. None of this had happened by chance. You see, there is really no such thing as coincidence. We can talk about coincidences and the probability of things happening. We call things lucky. 
but there's really no such thing. There are all sorts of things that we don't need to and we, don't, we won't understand. And we don't need to worry about how every detail fits together. But all the same, in God's plan, under His rule, everything, everything does fit together. The same God who is sovereign over Israel's defeat, the fall of Eli's house, the call of the prophet Samuel, the capture of the ark of God, the Philistines, the tumors, the mice, and even these cows is sovereign over us too. Friends, God is sovereign over absolutely every detail of our lives. And if you're in Christ this morning, that is incredibly comforting news. It means that every moment of your life has meaning, even when you don't know what they mean. So then be encouraged, church. God is sovereign. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that that's how you ended up in this room this morning. And I'm going to tell you why. It's to hear the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, which we're going to come to in our last section where we see that God will be sanctified. Chapter 6, verse 19 through chapter 7, verse 1. God will be sanctified. Pick up in 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Amenadab and on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. Now, it might have seemed fitting for us to end that section with verse 18. As everything seems right in the world for a moment, the ark's back, the people are celebrating and worshiping, it's a harvest party. But that's not where the text ends. And here we find that the Lord killed some of the men of that place too. If you're using the NASB, you have a drastically different number. If you would like me to try to explain that to you, come see me after, and I will tell you why mine says 70 and yours says 50,000, uh, but I can't take time to do that right now. But just know a lot of people died, and uh, that's what's significant about this at this point. But the interesting thing about this is that he's striking the Israelites just like he struck the Philistines. Now, to be fair, it says here that he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, Whereas he had said he struck all of the Philistine cities, all of the men of the Philistine cities in chapter 5, verse 9. But the point is that God is not more or less lenient with anyone. There is one standard, and every single person on the planet throughout history is held to it. No one gets a pass. And that begs the question. What is the one standard God holds all of us to? 
Well, we're told, at least by allusion, in the people's outcry in verse 20. God's standard is God's holiness. The men he struck had violated his standard of holiness. They did that by looking upon the ark of the Lord. Now, this might confuse us because there wasn't a problem when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark in verse 13. So what was the difference between the seeing of verse 13 and the looking upon of verse 19? Well, Numbers 4 tells us. The Lord gave Moses and Aaron specific instructions for the way the ark should be transported. He told them, quote, When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his son shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on a covering of goatskin and spread on top of that a cloth of all blue and shall put it in its poles. See, the covering is key. It kept the Israelites from looking upon the ark as it was being transported. The veil is what kept them from looking upon it when the ark was stationary. They were not to treat the ark so irreverently as to gawk at it like just another shiny object. In fact, verse 20 of Numbers chapter 4 warns that even as the appointed priests were carrying out this task, quote, they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. You see, even in this Levite city where the law should have been known, it wasn't followed. Now, there might be a little hint of this in the fact that they offer two milk cows for burnt offering when they were only supposed to offer male offerings according to Leviticus 3, but the glaring offense was how they dealt with the ark. Instead of covering the ark, they put it on display. And they might as well have sold tickets and given out popcorn. But the Lord put a swift end to their irreverence. And just like that, the people's rejoicing was turned to mourning. And they too, the covenant people of God, want the ark to leave them just like the Philistines did. Now this is a sad testimony that time had not healed all wounds. The absence of the ark these seven months had not made their hearts grow fonder of God. And as things stood, everything still wasn't right between them and the Lord, even though the ark was back on their soil. They had had one worship service, but that didn't mean that their relationship had mended. And that's signified by them quickly shipping off the ark some 10 miles away to the town of Kiriath-Jerim. And it's there that we see a small glimmer of hope for God's people. Unlike everyone else we've seen in this passage, the people of Kiriath-Jerim wanted the presence of God among them. That's why they went to go and get the ark in the first place. And the reason the ark could stay there for over 20 years, according to chapter 7, verse 2, is because also unlike everyone else we've seen so far, the people of Kiriath-Jerim sought to honor the Lord as holy. That's why they consecrated Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord as Numbers 4 directs. They acted according to God's word to treat the ark with reverence and honor for God's holiness. Instead of seeing God's holiness as an obstacle to overcome, something to get rid of, 
They saw it as an obligation to come under and a reason to worship Him. And the Lord blessed them for it. So what about you this morning? How do you view God's holiness? Does your life, the things you say and do and think and feel, do they sanctify the Holy One? Do you honor Christ the Lord as holy in your heart? Is your foremost prayer that the name of our Father in heaven be hallowed? When you're confronted with the holiness of God, do you respond by wanting His presence to leave you so you can keep on doing whatever it is that you're doing? Or change you? Friends, the answer to the people's rhetorical question in verse 20, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, is no one. No sinner. No one who is unholy can stand before the Lord in His holiness. And that includes all of us. But you see, God in heaven sent His Son to earth to live the sinless and holy life we have all failed to live. Just as the ark of God was was uncorrupted in an unholy place among unholy people, Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. He touched the unclean and leprous, and yet He remained unblemished because they had no power to change who He was and is. Not only that, but He hung on a cross and died bearing the wrath of God for all the unholiness of His people. But because He remained holy, He was raised from the dead on the third day and is even now with the Father in heaven. You see, friends, in our passage, the people thought that they would be spared God's judgment if God's presence left them. That was because they refused to enter into a relationship with Him and be changed by Him. The Philistines changed their customs about not treading on the threshold of their God, but they ultimately refused to change their beliefs about who the God of Israel was. They saw what was going on. They went to great lengths to prove it. They understood that God was against them and that He was certainly greater than their false god Dagon. But they refused to stop worshiping their idol. Instead of changing their ways and sanctifying the Lord in their hearts, they sent the presence of God away and kept right on doing what they had been doing before He came. You know, that's the same thing that happened to Jesus in Luke 8, which Ashley read earlier. The Gentiles saw the power and authority of Jesus over this legion of demons. But yet, instead of pleading with Him to stay, they begged Him to leave. When they were confronted with the holiness of God in their midst, they decided it would be better for them if God's presence left them. And you might feel that way too. You see, there are some people who will tell you 
that you can have the blessings of God's presence without being changed by His holiness, without being sanctified, that is, being made holy by God. But it's not true. Your immediate experience might not match the Philistines. You get tumors and rats. Might not match the men of Beth Shemesh's experience who were struck down, but ultimately it will be the same. Here's how. God's presence will be removed from you. To put it more accurately, you will be cast out away from the presence of the Lord forever. He will say to you, depart from me, because in your heart you have told him, depart from me. And that is the worst possible judgment that is. That's hell. But that doesn't have to be your experience. You, as a sinner, are not able to enter the presence of the God who is holy. But Jesus offers His holiness to you to usher you into the presence of God. He will bring the presence of God into you by His Spirit if you will turn away from the insanity of your sin and believe in Him. Friends, there is no escaping God's holiness. You can experience it as a curse, as a standard that you were never able to reach. Or you can experience it as a blessing, as the standard that has been met in Jesus. Either way, God will be sanctified. But I plead with you on, for the sake of your own soul, to believe in Christ today and know the blessing that God's standard of holiness is. And if you'd like to talk to someone more about this, I'd be glad to talk to you at the end of this service. Now just one word of application for our congregation and then we'll close. In one sense, the holiness of God that we've seen in this passage is terrifying. Sometimes we don't talk about this because we wear Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts and we talk about what a friend we have in God. Those are, those are great ideas. We have a relationship with God. He is our friend. Praise the Lord for that. But I think sometimes what we miss in that is the realization that this is a God who is to be feared. Not in an expectation of judgment, 1 John 4, but with a recognition of who he is as we are created in his image and have marred his image in our sin. See, at the same time, even though we fear this God in reverence and in awe, it is because God is holy that we worship him. He is holy, holy, holy as he reveals himself in his word. If he weren't, then he'd be just like us. Or another worthless idol. But because he is set apart from us and yet draws us to himself through his son, this is a God who is worthy of our lives. So then, Christian, don't be discouraged when God reveals your sin to you. Nothing strange about you. That is the experience of every Christian until we die on this earth. It stings. It's humiliating, at least just to ourselves. 
But it's God's grace to us. As He shows us through His Word where we're not like Him, He is at the same time showing us where He is calling us to change so that we will be like Him. Our relationship with Him has been founded and secured by the holiness of Christ. But the level of intimacy with Him that we experience involves our battle to pursue His holiness. And when we do that, we sanctify the Lord. We give Him the glory due His name. And we prepare ourselves for the blessing that comes with His presence. So dear saints, please remember, the God who loves you is supreme. The God who loves you is sovereign. And may He be sanctified by us as people today. Let's pray. Father, would you please get glory in our lives in the way that we are changed by your word. Help us not to be pushed away from you as we see your holiness, but to be drawn to be like you. Not that we would earn your salvation. Not that we would misunderstand our role of keeping ourselves. But that we would know your great love for us. That you would condescend to make sinners like us, created beings, into the image of your Son. Please continue that work in us from this day forward until Christ returns. We ask it in his name. Amen.